In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today. Help us to truly pull together all of that we've learned over the past ten weeks. Help us to put it together to see the importance of the church in extension of you yourself. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Well, it's always sad to have uh, the last class come up in a way, but uh, I, I think all good things must come to an end, as they say. And uh, what I'd like to do briefly is to just go through uh, what we've learn so that you can pull it together to see that it's an important subject and as many of you have already expressed to me uh, they see the church in a slightly different light and that's really important uh, with the many problems that face the church today we must remember that those same kinds of problems maybe a slightly different nature, but the fact that the church has been bombarded with uh, problems, with scandals, uh, with tragedies of all kinds. Uh, in fact, last night I saw something quickly on television, frankly I don't even remember what program it was, but there was a mention that one of the uh, popes of the early church, not real early, but uh, somewhere around the 11th, 12th century, was only 18 years old. Now, you could say, well, how can that be? Well, as you have already heard me say in, in many times, that royalty was always trying to uh, get control of the church for their personal use. And at one point in time, uh, it was royalty who actually chose who the Pope was going to be. And he chose his nephew in one case, uh, simply because he knew he could control that person. Well, that didn't last very long, as you can imagine. But nevertheless, that was only a minor uh, problem. The church has been faced with many, many problems over the years. And I don't want to belabor the point, but I feel that it was the devil's way, Satan's way, of trying to get back at Jesus Christ himself. This battle, this uh, mystic battle between good and evil, between God and Satan has been going on forever. And because Christ came to earth for a specific reason and gave himself as ransom for mankind, if we don't take advantage of that, then we are going to fall into the hands of Satan. Now, as I've said many times, it's very, very, very rare that Satan will attack one individual. 
unless that individual has the power over many people. But it is generally Satan who will pick up a movement or a concept that many people are considering or have adopted and use that against the church. And that we have seen over and over throughout the centuries, particularly with people in power, social power, uh, over countries, large regions of people. They will try to diminish the importance of the church, and that has been going on forever. It is the same thing with today. The sexual harassment and abuse problems that we have uh, been aware of for some time and are really coming to a head, and you might say, um, this is no different than some of the others, and probably not as uh, important as some of the others, but I don't want to diminish the importance that it is. In fact, uh, there was, as you probably have read, a movement by the bishops of the United States to get together uh, to determine what kind of uh, punishment should be uh, given to those priests, uh, bishops, perhaps even cardinals, who were involved in all of this problem. But just recently, the Pope has put uh, a stop on that. And oh, that just has raised all kinds of uh, problems among the American priests and bishops. But it's not that the Pope doesn't want to do something about it. As you may know, there is a major worldwide synod of bishops to be held next February. And it is my feeling from reading sort of between the lines that it's the Pope's intent to address that particular subject of the uh, sexual abuse thing on a worldwide basis rather than letting each country kind of develop a method or uh, some form of uh, punishment on their own. And that has become a more important issue than it was in the past. Uh, you can't deal with individual countries or let individual countries uh, run their own version of the church. We are a worldwide community. And whatever we do in one country affects other countries uh, in a similar way. And therefore, the Pope has determined that whatever punishment is developed for such priests should be on a worldwide basis, not on an individual country basis. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think that applies as well in the past. The Vatican has always been somewhat, in the eyes of the general people, or general public, uh, somewhat uh, reluctant to jump in and make decisions. And I think that is because they do it on a worldwide basis, not on an individual basis. 
and that makes a great deal of sense, at least to me. Anyways, going further, I think what we should look at, uh, at least today, is how all of this came together right from the apostles. <coughs> Excuse me. In the Nicene Creed, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the community of saints, the forgiveness of sin, and so forth. And in there is the idea of the apostolic church. The word comes from, obviously, the apostles. What the apostles did, what they understood from Christ himself, how it affected them, and how they disseminated that same meaning to uh, those people to whom they preached in order to spread the good news as God commissioned them, and as it says in Matthew chapter 28, go out to the whole world and tell the good news, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he didn't mention any country in particular, mentioned the whole world. And that is the way the church looks at humanity from a worldwide point of view, rather than on a country-by-country -country basis, even though we know, and it is recognized, that there are different cultures in each of the countries. But we have to deal with it on a worldwide basis, and it is the countries that have to adopt to what the church says rather than the church trying to adopt what humanity says. Because can you imagine the church changing every time uh, some little thing changes in one country or another, whether it spreads to others or not? You can't, that just doesn't work. There. Uh, but from the apostles, there developed a nucleus of, of people. You have Timothy and Titus and all of the others that we've heard of uh, from the letters of Paul, Peter and Paul, uh, going out. Even the letter to the Hebrews, which is one of my favorites in the, in the Bible, because it is probably the second most theological of the gospel or of the letters in the New Testament after the book of Romans uh, by Paul. So those have all talked about spreading the good news in a similar way out to all mankind. And so for the time from Christ up to the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the only thing that the apostles could preach and teach about was the life of Jesus Christ as they knew it, as they lived with him, and most importantly, what he commissioned them to do, to say, uh, and how to live. As Paul's letters began to be uh, distributed, and, of course, you know, this all had to be done by longhand written. Uh, so it took time. 
So it wasn't until close to the end of the first century that the ceremony that we call the Mass was separated from the family meal by just almost anyone who wasn't a, a believer and made into a separate ceremony called the breaking of the bread for a long, long time. It did not have the formality that we have today that grew over a period, long period of time, much longer than most people think. From the time of Peter and Paul, the rest of the disciples, particularly John, who was, as most people know, the last of the apostles, the Mass developed as the most important aspect, the most important event uh, in the life of Christ and in the life of the Church. The Mass, you might say, is a reenactment of the passion, death, and resurrection, the main purpose for Jesus Christ being here on earth in the first place. He came as God's gift to mankind to be that sacred and divine sacrifice that mankind by himself could not give. And it is this idea of God giving himself that we should constantly think about as the anchor for our life and our belief. It is something that we can always go back to and <clears throat> when we are approached with the question, why should I do this or why should I do that? Why should I do what the church has told us? And it's because it is part of Christ himself. The church is an extension of Jesus Christ. And though we may not agree with what some of the people that run the church say and do, we cannot deny the church itself, the concept of the church. That is the most important thing in life and should be the anchor of our life and belief. Going on, after the destruction of the temple, the priesthood of the Jewish or, or of Judaism uh, disappeared. There was no more temple, therefore, to the Jewish people, there was no more value in animal sacrifice, and so that disappeared. Judaism pretty much disintegrated, uh, although it did resurrect uh, a little bit later, a couple hundred years later, but not to the same degree it was. It is now uh, more of a cultural, cultural thing than it is a religious thing. All right, but it was the roots. Judaism was the roots of our faith, and therefore we should never put it down. Judaism was extremely important, and it was the roots, the main portion uh, or, or the beginning of God's plan of salvation 
as implemented through mankind. And that's something that is very important. We should keep that always in mind. And therefore, we should never, never criticize Judaism in itself. Yes, there's probably been a lot of Jewish people that have done strange things uh, that we might sit back and question, but not the idea of Judaism itself. Like Christianity, like the Catholic Church, it is part, a very main part of our church system, of our belief system, and therefore we should never, never put it down. After the Roman Empire began to disintegrate, out and we should at least mention why it disintegrated. And that was because it was the epitome of um, social governance for a number of years. But it looked upon itself as being the glorious gift to mankind, and it ignored God entirely. And therefore, because of its own internal weaknesses, it developed and destroyed itself. Uh, developed and destroyed, I'm sorry. That isn't quite right. It's a contradiction in itself. But it destroyed itself because of its internal weaknesses, <coughs> selfishness, uh, misuse of all of the things that God has given us. But the church had to step in and sort of take over, otherwise mankind would have perished. And so this church stepped in as being the only authority uh, that was available to mankind, particularly in uh, Europe and its surrounding communities, North Africa. From that, the church developed even further. But as it developed, it recognized many problems that entered into something that was from God. And that was Satan constantly attacking the church primarily through the royalty of the social countries <coughs> excuse me, of Western Europe. There was a constant battle going on for a thousand years between the royalty of, and I use royalty in a very uh, loose way because some had emperors, some had kings, some had other kinds of uh, designations. Uh, you had a number of princes that were over uh, various principalities and communities, etc., etc. So I use the word royalty uh, to cover it all. But there was a constant battle between royalty and the church for control. But the church would sit back and wait, and eventually the church always won out. Take the 
Avignon popes, you might say, for uh, an example. A French pope was uh, elected primarily by the uh, strength and the grace and the pressure put upon it by the French church. That pope was enticed to come to France uh, partly because Rome was disintegrating again uh, and partly because the first French pope took quite a bit of illness and was uh, treated, you might say, uh, by the physicians in France. And therefore, the French sort of took power over that. And for 70 years, including one of the popes that I mentioned earlier, of being, uh, you know, a teenager, uh, that was involved in the Avignon uh, Pope schism. But eventually, the church won out by sitting back a little bit and waiting for the right moment, the right time, and by God's grace, uh, won out by calling the last, <coughs> pardon me, the last of those popes back to Rome with the help of St. Catherine of Siena. Now, you, you might say, well, why St. Catherine of Siena? Uh, didn't women have a very uh, sort of hidden position. Well, yes, but you know, even today they say behind every strong, important man is a woman pushing. Okay. And it was through the graces of God that St. Catherine of Siena, and I won't go all the details, it is a very interesting story in itself, if you wish to look it up. But she was able to entice the Pope to come back to Rome where, you know, he should have been in the first place. <coughs> but that is just a minor uh, case of showing how the devil can really get in there in almost an innocent-looking way and create a real problem. And it was a real problem uh, for over 70 years. But over a period of time, there would develop many things that were in favor of the Pope. The monastery system, for one, very important. St. Benedict was one of the most important uh, abbots of the time. He developed Monte Cassino in the fourth century, and from that he developed a system of monastic life that was adopted by many others. Most of the uh, cloistered monastery systems today have some or all of the rule that Benedict originated way back in the fourth century. <coughs> Going through forward, it wasn't until the 15th century, a thousand years from the time of the collapse of the Roman Empire, that things really began to change. The church had grown so strong in the life of the average person 
particularly in Central and in Western Europe, that they sort of dictated virtually how to breathe, what to do, what not to do, socially as well as spiritually. And people began to resent it, particularly as uh, education became more available to individuals. And people began to think on their own rather than accepting what the church told them. Now keep in mind that the church people did this out of necessity because there wasn't anyone else who would con uh, who had the power, the authority, the respect, and so forth of the majority of the people. That didn't mean that everybody accepted what the church did, but they generally went along with it because there wasn't any other uh, authority that was accepted or recognized by everyone. But eventually, the pressure within Christianity, which was the only Christian church, or Catholicism was the only Christian church up to about the 15th century or 16th century. Okay. But the pressure began to develop to the point where it was like a balloon that was uh, filled to capacity and then somebody stuck a pin into it and burst it. And that was Martin Luther in 15... 17, Martin Luther got tired of the abuses that the church in some areas, not entirely, but in some areas, the abuse that was coming from the church over a specific uh, idea of indulgences and a number of others that Martin Luther didn't like. Now, he had his own hang-ups, but his intentions were good. We cannot deny that. His original intentions of nailing his 95 thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral in October of uh, 1517 was a, a good thing. And eventually it was a good thing for everybody, including the church. But the church, of course, didn't see that right away. His 95 theses had to do primarily with indulgences, but it also attacked the Pope uh, for many abuses or misuse uh, of his powers. And I think that he was correct. Unfortunately, it had a negative effect for the majority of the people who had been building up over a short period of time this resentment against the authority of the church, particularly, again, the royalty. And they felt that, well, if Martin Luther can do it, and he's a priest of the church, obviously they can do it too, the royalty, because they were more important uh, than a a priest of the church. Uh, and so it opened the door to a lot of things. Not just religion, but the whole idea of separating religion from society in general, as far as ruling the church. 
and ruling mankind. And eventually it led to uh, a separation of many things in many ways. I think that this particular book here that I've mentioned many, many times, A Concise History of the Catholic Church, is a must-reading for everyone. Uh, and all of these really should be. So if you're inclined to like history, I think you will enjoy any and all of those. All right, and I've made a list here of them so that you can take the list and get them on your own if you wish. Okay. From Martin Luther's uh, original acts, there developed then several ideas and concepts of what religion should be. But in reading this particular book on Martin Luther and his ideas and his actions and their effect, it screams out at you that these people are doing things their way, not God's way. And when we do that, we are bound to fail. And most of them did fail. Right? Because they did not take into consideration what did God want. And that should be a main thing in our life. Whenever we go to make a major decision in changes of life, changes in direction of any kind, we should consider what God wants of us before we make that decision. Because you're bound to fail in some way if you don't. And fail, most of them did. Unfortunately, the effect in general opened the door to uh, living without religion. There's a, a lot of reference in there too because it wasn't what religion, it was I don't want any religion in my life. And for a while that was punishable by, well, uh, all kinds of ideas and even punishable by death in, in many countries. Those who sided with the church and those who sided against the church, they took and made their own ideas and uh, the effect and responsibility and uh, what was going to be the repercussions for all of these things. It was something that was inevitable. I think Martin Luther's actions were something that could have been done virtually by almost anyone else who had the nerve to do it. Uh, but eventually it was a good thing because with the advance in education, the availability of uh, the printing press and the dissemination of information and communication, uh, life would have changed anyways. Uh, I think that the idea of the fathers of our country, 
the United States, embedded the best of most of those ideas. Uh, most of the fathers of our Constitution uh, and our form of government came from the experience that finally developed in Europe and they took the best and made protection against the worst of what was going on in Europe at the time. And so we, our life has changed for the better because of what Martin Luther did. Now, we can see also that there were a number of problems. He had a number of hang-ups of his own, uh, but I think someday he's going to be honored uh, for the good that he did rather than the bad. Uh, so today, what is happening? Um, we didn't really talk about the Council of Trent, which was the counter uh, effect of what Martin Luther's problems did. The Council of Trent, as I said, was something that was in process even before Martin Luther's 95 Theses on the wall of the church, um, but it didn't come into effect until 1545. And it took 18 years for it to develop, but that was because they had to take all of the history that developed into, uh, in and through the church over the previous thousand years and try to make something out of it and put it into writing that had not been done before because of the lack of uh, the ability to reproduce copies sufficient for everybody. But with the printing press now, they were able to document the beliefs of the church, put them into writing, and disseminate them rather quickly. And so the Council of Trent became the most important event in the church uh, from the time of Christ uh, up until the 16th century. And we live by the teachings of Trent for 400 years. And I think it was very significant that the church grew in strength alongside of in an equal uh, basis, you might say, uh, with civil authorities. In other words, it wasn't the church running the countries of Europe or the countries of Europe running the church. It was they were working side by side. And that has been the method and the purpose of the church all along. And that is because Again, as I've said many times, God wants to be loved in a voluntarily basis rather than being forced into it. He wants our love to be voluntary. Now, unfortunately, when the voluntary is used, many people will say, well, then I volunteer not to do it at all. And that is part of free will. But 
you have to remember the consequences. There is only two places to go after we uh, die, and uh, heaven or hell, and those are the consequences of doing things your way rather than God's way. <clears throat> but we live with the console of Trent for 400 years, and I think it was a good thing. Now, but as life changes, and as the church changes, it had to be brought up to date. And so Vatican II, in 1960, 1962 through 65, uh, was the culmination of those changes. And I think we went through that last week. Uh, those were also an extremely important event in the life of the church, and we will probably live with uh, <clears throat> the ideas that came out of Vatican II for another couple hundred years, if not more. Uh, but I think if you read the documents of Vatican II, you can't help but increase the strength and the depth of your faith because it is so important. And each of them are put in a way that you can't really deny them. Um, they're just there, I think, uh, for everyone to accept and they're not too difficult to understand. But anyways, that is where we are today, living with the teachings of Vatican II. But it's interesting uh, <clears throat> that even with the best of the best, there were still large movements of people, even good people within the church people, who were against many of the things that came out of Vatican II because they were looking at their personal needs or wants or views rather than from the bigger picture of what does God want. And the devil got into a lot of these people and created a number of problems. Uh, you have a whole country practically uh, leave the church, and that is, I'm speaking of the country of the Netherlands, leave the church because the Archbishop Lefebvre and a number of his followers broke away and created what is called the Society of St. Peter, St. Peter the, hmm, the number forget, uh, escapes me right now, but they uh, have separated themselves from Rome and from the church in general and created their own church. Well, that's unfortunate uh, because they will not be accepted at the door of St. Peter uh, when the door is, when they finally reach that point. Um, but it is not up to me to make that decision. All right. But you have a, a number of negative reactions against Vatican II, but are, most of them are being resolved. The biggest one, of course, was in changing the uh, language of the Mass 
from Latin to the local language of each country. Uh, there were a number of other changes that many people objected to, but I think, again, Vatican II uh, was very important. And the two of those together were the most important of the ecumenical councils of all 21 so far. Yeah. Well, that's kind of where we are right now. Um, I think we're at a high point where the Pope is really accepted and honored by the governments of all countries. May not be accepted in the same way, but nevertheless accepted as uh, an equal um, and for some special reasons uh, recognizing the, the religious aspect of the relationship. Uh, again, I hope that this session will help you look at the church in a better light. Uh, quite often, people have condemned the church just sort of across the board because of what some people have done within the church. <clears throat> we have to, in some ways, constantly keep in mind that the church is one thing, the people who run it are another. The church is divine, those people are not. Now, there are many, many holy people within the church. Unfortunately, they don't always have total control. Um, even the Pope himself seldom, seldom ever works on something totally by himself. He always gets uh, help and approval and reviews and comments, etc., with others. He still has to make his own decisions, and he is the final decision of everything that comes out of Rome. But nevertheless, he doesn't do that solely on his own. Uh, and we must always remember that. So, I think with that, we'll some cover our review period and get into some of the questions that we've had. Um, I had four written questions, or excuse me, typed out questions. Um, one wasn't typed out, but it was clear enough. And I, I would like to go through those first, and then we'll open it up to any other questions that you might have. Uh, the first one here, and I'll read the questions, and I actually typed out answers. And I've made a few copies, so if any of you uh, would like the copy of this, you, you may have, so have it. And I'm going to read from the typed one here. It says in the book of Genesis, the story that God created man and woman. Is it true or is it just the story in the Bible? Is there any other reference that speaks to the creation of man and woman? And there's another question besides that, but I'll answer this one first. First of all, we must believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and God cannot lie. However, we as Catholics believe that the divine revelation, of which the Bible is only part of, 
by which and from which our faith is derived comes to us not only from sacred scripture, the Bible, but also from tradition and the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church. So, to answer the question, the story of Adam and Eve and the creation of the world as contained in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, are what we call an allegory, a story with a purpose to explain something that cannot be explained any other way. And that is, something is how and why God created the world and mankind. Which, of course, is a much bigger question and a much longer answer. When the Old Testament was just being put together in about the 5th century B.C., in the form that we have today, the histories, underlined the histories of the Jewish people, were brought together, and we believe by the priest Ezra. But there is no, because there was no beginning in those histories, everything started from the point of, of Judaism from the time of Abraham. And from Abraham on, there was a lot of history remembered by many of the people, and there were artifacts and so forth uh, to back that up. But there was nothing prior to Abraham. So the book of Genesis was written, again by the priest, we believe, Ezra, as the beginning of the story of creation. And I think you couldn't find another document that was so well inspired by God than the book of Genesis. Because we learn more about God the Father from that book, particularly the first 11 chapters, than we have for the whole rest of the Old Testament. Extremely, extremely important. <clears throat> when the Old Testament was put together about the 5th century by Ezra, the histories of the Jewish people were brought together, but there was no beginning to the story of Abraham, uh, where there is historical available data about that, Abraham and others. Uh, this has come down to us as uh, is and to us as is in accordance with the teachings of the Catholic Church through the magisterium. In other words, the magisterium, the teaching authority of Christ, takes certain aspects of the Bible and sort of digests those and really looks at what is the full extent of that particular subject. And this, I'm talking not only about creation, but about many other things in the Bible. All right? <clears throat> because not everything that we believe can be supported by the Bible. All right. Question number two from the same person. Heaven, hell, and purgatory are spiritual places not physical, at least that's what I said, okay? Where in the Bible does it say that? Again, as I just said, not everything that we believe comes 
or can be supported by the Bible. That is a very Protestant viewpoint. As stated above, not everything Catholics believe is supported directly by the Bible. However, through the analysis of what is in the Bible, the church has deduced many things that have been handed down to us and which we must believe. This again is through the teaching authority of the church, which we call the magisterium. However, for the sake of this question and answer, let me put it this way. Heaven, purgatory, and hell are spiritual conditions of the soul, acquired or deserved, as a result of their or our life on earth. Since God and our souls are spiritual beings, there is no need for a physical place for them to be. However, we do believe that our bodies will be um, resurrected at some point in time, and there will be a need for a physical place for them to exist. How this will happen, uh, we know nothing about. So, we've talked about this before at some length, that heaven is not a physical place, but a state of being. Look at it in a little more, in a slightly different way. If we believe God is pure spirit, and if we believe our souls our spirit, not always pure, but our souls, our spirit, then why would we need to have a physical place for heaven? Well, you know, certain things have to be accepted uh, by faith, and that is what faith is all about to accept the things that we cannot understand or cannot see. But the church tells us this is so. All right. Let me go on because, and I have answers, uh, you know, typed out copies of, of that answer here. <clears throat> the next three are somewhat related. Someone asked me, and I don't remember who it was, about the Immaculate Conception and wanted me to give a paper that I wrote. Is that person here? Oh, okay, Jan. Yeah. Anyways, all right. I have one here for you. And uh, I will read this to everybody at the same time. Jan wanted to know about the Immaculate Conception. And I have written this paper, paper out some years ago. In fact, this one is dated January of 2013. But... It also goes back even before that. Anyways, this is about Mary, all right? And it covers more than just probably what you wanted to know, but it all has to fit together, all right? The concept of the Immaculate Conception and the Virgin Mary, the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary, is based on the fact that God and sinful mankind are incompatible or cannot live together. 
and cannot live together because of divine purity and sin cannot coexist in the same body, divine or human. From this, we will see that when God's plan of salvation, it was time to bring forth the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. God had to have a perfect, pure vehicle to bear his son for the normal period of pregnancy. However, uh, oh, wait, I skipped a line here. <laughs> Again, because Jesus, the divine Son of God, could not be conceived and carried in the body of a woman for nine months, regardless of how minor her sins might have been. And therefore, God had to create a perfectly pure woman. All right. Therefore, God, in an extreme case of intervention, um, decreed that from the very beginning of creation, the mother of his son would be exempt from the stain of original sin and remain sinless thereafter. She was, therefore, to be exempt from the consequences of the sin of Adam and Eve from her conception <coughs> excuse me, within the womb of her mother, St. Elizabeth. This, I mean St. Anne, I should have corrected that, you're right. You see, mankind is not divine. <laughs> this was part of God's plan from the very beginning of creation, signified by the prophecy of God to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Genesis chapter 3. It was therefore part of God's plan from the beginning and not something thought up at the time of her conception. The encyclopedia, uh, the Catholic encyclopedia, says it this way. In this sense, the privilege of the Immaculate Conception was the anticipated fruit of Christ's saving passion, death and resurrection. It was fitting that she who was to bear the Savior of the world should herself be preserved from sin and its consequences and thus uh, be the first to benefit from what he would win for the whole human race. Uh, and this is divine purity. On December the 8th, 1854, Pope Pius XI defined and published the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, which is celebrated on that date, December the 8th, uh, each year thereafter. Now, going further, the Catholic Church has always decreed that Mary remained free of all sin, and thus, by virtue of this, the church decreed that Mary had no other children for the same reason, that she who was by the grace of God conceived, conceived in perfect justice, that is, free of sin, could not carry for nine months <clears throat> children who were conceived in the natural order under the consequences of the sin of Adam and Eve. Lastly, because of Mary's perfect sinlessness, 
she was exempt from the corruption of the human body, one of the consequences of original sin. This is the basis for the church declaring that Mary was assumed into heaven in body and soul. This truth was declared a dogma of the church by Pope uh, Pius XII on November the 1st, 1950. The Feast of the Immaculate Conception is celebrated on August the 15th of each year. It is therefore all of the above reasons that the Catholics honor the Blessed Virgin Mary as the fairest and holiest woman of all time because it was through her that the Savior of the world was born. Did, did everyone hear, hear that? All right. There is no written uh, evidence of any kind of Mary and uh, the assumption of Mary or Mary's death. Mary did not die in the traditional human way because death is part of the consequences of original sin. If mankind had never sinned, can't imagine that. But if mankind had never sinned, we'd all be in the perfect state that God originally made mankind. And there would be no need for death. So death is a consequences of sin. And if Mary was totally without sin throughout in her entire life, then she did not die. She was assumed at a given time into heaven, body and soul. And the reason the body was, in, uh, was assumed into heaven was because it was not to be corrupted in any way. Corruption of the body is a normal part of sin. Consequences of sin. Does that make sense? It says... Uh, here, as noted in the timelines for the 21 ecumenical councils that I handed out uh, several weeks ago, uh, the Council of the Lateran II in the year 1130 adopted measures against the schism organized by the anti-pope Anticletus and approved 30 measures or dogmas, uh, or doctrines, not dogmas, doctrines, related to discipline, including the sacrament of holy orders, uh, and was this an impediment to marriage, or the sacrament of holy orders being an impediment to marriage? Is this the point, and this is the question, is this the point which ordained priests must remain unmarried and celibate? Were priests able to be married prior to that? And what was the sum what were some of the other disciplinary measures taken at that time, and were they directly related to the schism? <clears throat> and the answer is, the role, the structure, and manner of the Roman Catholic priesthood has evolved through many changes in the 2,000 years since the time of Jesus Christ. If you recall, I mentioned that the priesthood of Judaism 
disappeared after the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD and was never reconstituted. And part of that is because the apostles and their immediate followers had a bad relationship or a bad connotation or understanding of the Judaism priesthood. So they had no idea and no reason or desire to reconstruct a priesthood at that time based on the format that they understood from Judaism. In the New Testament, there is no mention of a Christian priesthood, and only the priesthood of Jesus is implied. The ordination of seven deacons is mentioned with some clarity and detail in the Acts of the Apostles, but no mention of a Christian priesthood, uh, nor is it mentioned in other writings until um, the second century. And these come from such writers as St. Ignatius of Antioch and St. Clement, who was one of the uh, later popes, and uh, were referred to as appointees of the bishop. In other words, these were helpers to the bishop. Remember, the bishop was the only one after the mass was separated from the family meal and given to just special appointed people. Right? The bishop was the only one that then could consecrate the sacred host and, and wine, or sacred bread and the wine. All right. <clears throat> Then as, as the monastic system developed, there was an, an appointee whose function was to preside at the breaking of the bread ceremony or the mass in its early stages. This function developed into what was then called a presbyter, the early word for priest. Because these were monks and were not married, the custom continued even and when the role of the presbyter moved out beyond the monastery. In the year 306 AD, at the regional council, not a communal council, but a regional council at uh, Elvira in Spain, the concept of, of celibacy became mandatory, but that only applied to Spain. However, the practice began to spread throughout all of the Western Christian world, but was not accepted in the Eastern churches. Celibacy became one of the many issues of the East-West schism. And yet, in the Ecumenical Council of the Lateran II, in the year 1139, it became mandatory for all Roman Catholic priests. This was affirmed in the Council of Trent in the year 1562 through 65. Now, the other part of that question was, was there any married priest in that time period? Well, yes, there was, because there was no law against it. But it was somewhat rare. And in some cases, uh, even after uh, 1169, if you read 
uh, the book on Martin Luther, there were priests who took families uh, or took wives and had families, but that was illegal. Okay. Celibacy in the Catholic Church has been a controversial topic for many years, even today. It may someday be abolished, but probably not in our lifetime. So you had sort of a two-part question there. I hope that makes sense. No, 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 no. I mean, there is no beginning of when the rosary was first developed. No. No, the rosary was in process long before even St. Dominic. But we have no idea, there is no written reference of who originated or how the rosary was originated. We do know that many uh, countries, many cultures had beads used in their prayer service or other religious related services. But we do not know for sure how the rosary got started. It is believed that because in monasteries and in some cloistered convents, they would go through the psalms. And there happened to be exactly 150 psalms in everybody's Bible. And so in monasteries, they would try to go through all of the psalms over a specific period of time. Well, in trying to uh, develop prayers that would be somewhat equal because, as I said before many times, most of the people couldn't read anyways, and therefore they couldn't read the Psalms, so they developed their own prayers. And, of course, as you know, the first half of the uh, Hail Mary comes directly out of the Bible. And all they had to do was sort of finish it. So the Hail Mary developed in the monasteries and convents little by little. And then because they couldn't go through all of the 150 uh, psalms, they developed quick prayers, but 150 was a lot, quite a bit. So it was then divided into three parts. Three, as you know, has always been a favorite or a sacred number within Judaism, and that passed over into Christianity. So that's how we know, or that's where we believe, that the rosary came out of the idea of the reciting of the Psalms and then into something that was a little easier and didn't take as long, uh, as much time, because the Psalms, some of them are quite long. All right. <clears throat> so, um, now, we know, do know that the rosary became a very important uh, sacramental in many cases. One of them was at the Battle of Lepanto, uh, I believe that was the 12th century, 
um, between Christians and Islams. And it was through the recitation of the rosary that that battle was won by the weaker Christian force. Uh, but there has been uh, many, many uses of the rosary and many mentions of it in the apparitions of Mary since then. One of them being Fatima, one of them even being earlier than Fatima, and that was uh, Guadalupe, uh, and many others. Okay. So, unfortunately, there is no history of the church. And I have a paper up here uh, if you wish to, to have a copy of that. Okay. Um, lastly, someone asked for a list of the books that I've used in putting this course together. And so I have a list here of all of these books, and the books are right here if you want to take a look at them. Okay. Now, some of you have already purchased books, and someone, I forgot who it was, Elnor, was it you? Oh, no, Diana, said that she purchased the book of uh, Vatican II uh, from Amazon's used book section, okay? Uh, and uh, someone else got a uh, one, one of the books from one of the local books, uh, used bookstores here. Uh, one of the books that I haven't mentioned too often, and I use it as a reference, is this uh, milestone here, you know? over a thousand pages and it's not something that you would want to read from page to page <laughs> but it is an excellent reference book now this is also available in used bookstores some people didn't want to keep it around because of its size and its weight all right so these this is very uh, available all right this is by Richard McBrien who is a, a very prolific writer, has done uh, another book on the uh, saints. And there's a third book that I have. I forgot which it is. Um, but those are excellent. Anyways, there are a listing of all of these books up here. So you're welcome to have any of these. One each, please. Uh, uh, any questions that you want to ask? Yes. Yes. Very good question. After Vatican II, many priests left the priesthood and nuns as well. All right. There is a section in one of the documents of Vatican II that asks all also ordained or consecrated people to review their own faith and commitment. And if they feel that they wish to be released from their vows, they may do so. And that was, it's better to have fewer people who are really committed than a lot of people who are only there because they feel forced to be there by a commitment they made earlier in life 
by mistake. And so many priests took advantage of that and many nuns as well. And that's why you the, the convents were practically decimated by that uh, order. All right. But it was all done legally uh, with permission. But I think many priests also left because of the change from Latin to the local language uh, and probably did it on their own. But there is uh, an order, not an order, but uh, it's called laicization. In other words, to be laicized means to go back to the laity from the uh, from their uh, commitment. Okay. And many priests took advantage of that. Okay. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yes, Susan? No, well, he, he retired simply because of health and old age. Yeah, he felt he could not do the job well enough because the strain uh, was more than... And besides, he had been in those uh, high-level positions for many, many years, most of his priesthood. And he wasn't any spring chicken. Pardon the expression. Yes, Mike? No, 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 no. Uh, now, that's, that brings up another question. <clears throat> the question was, those priests that, be, that were laicized, if the marriages that they consecrated before that were they made invalid, and the answer is no. Now, there is another similar situation. Today you have a problem with many priests who have committed a lot of uh, wrongdoings, let's put it that way. All right? Some people have left the church because they feel uh, that those priests did not then, uh, their absolution in, in the confessional was invalid or invalidating. And that is not true. A priest who does, administers the sacrament of reconciliation and gives absolution, even though he himself is sinful, by giving him, giving the uh, sacrament of reconciliation to a person in a valid way, for the right intentions, that confession is valid, even though the priest himself is full of sin, because he is only a conduit. The power of the absolution comes from the church, not from the individual. Is that understood? The same way is if the priest who is full of sin, uh, officiates at a marriage and consecrates a marriage. That marriage is valid, again, because the authority comes through the priest from the church, not from the individual. Yes, Jean? The priest is the witness of the 
Yes. That's right. Yes. Yeah. The power does not come from the individual. The power comes through the individual from the church. And that's true with baptisms or any other sacrament. So you needn't be concerned or questioned as to what. Yes, Mike? The early church mainly moved to the west from Jerusalem. Yes. Well, that's that's true. Uh, the statement is that politicians cannot legislate their personal beliefs. Wouldn't that be the correct assumption? Yeah. Cannot could not legislate and put into action their personal beliefs. But on the other side of that, the flip side of that is we should not have put those people in power in the first place. But once we've done that, you put up with what they do and what they say. Because obeying legal authority is part of our faith. And we have to obey legal authority if it is constituted in a legal proper way. All right. We may not agree with it, but if it is legal, then we abide by it. And that's the problem that a lot of Catholic politicians face. They may face a law or a prospective law that is against their personal beliefs. But if it is processed and approved, then they must uphold it as well. I think with that, let's end our session. And this again, of course, is our last session. I uh, want to wish all of you a very happy and joyous Thanksgiving and a happy and Merry Christmas. <coughs> let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for all of the weeks that we've been together to understand and discover, rediscover our faith, to better understand it. Help us then to take it into heart, from mind to heart, and live it. For our faith is only as, goes as far as how we personally live it. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and we praise you in all things in Jesus' name.